suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Time can't be Hello out there and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Morahan, and my brother, J.S., to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate through those high seas of life. Today we introduce the Trial of the Century, Part 11. No difference one way or the other is the subtitle. So we carry on as we must continue the story of Leopold Loeb as the police in Chicago in 1924. Confessions in hand, next try to unearth what possibly could be the motive for the callous, barbaric murder of 14-year-old Bobby Franks. And the police investigators seriously pursue the means by which they might begin to understand the thought processes of two teenage boys who relied upon something. But what could it be? To justify the commission of murder and the moral code or the absence of one that would permit it. And this was shocking to the police at this point. And through awful experience, investigators had found that madness and lunacy often can be found lurking just outside the perimeter gates of great minds. That superior intelligence might be functioning at the limits of human tolerance, human endurance, but nevertheless, often appears to be operating in close proximity to that mysterious, unidentified part of the brain from wherein sadistic instincts and tendencies originate. And for reasons beyond scientific understanding, even back then or even now, genius is often found to exist, but only in extremis. That rare genius exists but only at high cost. The ability to um, process mathematical, statistical, scientific problems at the highest level does not mean that such genius translates into the equivalent development of high caliber social skills or enhances the likelihood that appropriate empathetic traits and impulses have been developed. In fact, the inte- that intellectual superiority might be achieved, but only at the expense, only at the expense of normal emotional growth. By well, way of illustration, let's take the case of Robert Oppenheimer, science director for the Manhattan Institute, you know, the Manhattan Project, established by the U.S. government for the purposes, you know, and the sole purposes of developing the atomic bomb before Hitler and Nazi Germany might develop it and then use it to destroy the known world. And and there is no doubting, there is absolutely no dispute that Robert Oppenheimer was an intellectual genius of the highest order. This man, for example, taught himself Dutch in six weeks. 
Six weeks. He mastered the Dutch language and the necessary technical terminology and jargon such that in 42 days, he was able to display the ability to deliver a talk on quantum physics to the world's foremost physicists in Dutch. Are you kidding me? How, how is it? How could anybody possibly do this? It's beyond comprehension. It's not humanly possible. And yet there's Robert Oppenheimer. And yet still there's this. This same genius, Robert, Robert Oppenheimer, years before, in a peak of anger, had seen fit to inject via syringe cyanide into an apple in hopes that he might poison one of his professors whom had angered him. Are you kidding me? How is, it, how is this possible? I mean, for normal people, the average human of average intelligence with normal levels of intelligence and human empathy. You know, both these actions appear, I mean, just incompatible, improbable. They appear, they appear impossible. You gotta be, you gotta be, I mean, just an astonishing genius to be able to learn Dutch and give a speech on quantum physics and yet think that poisoning your professor with cyanide because he has upset you. I mean, these, that's a disturbed mind. And they're in the same mind. That's what's so, so amazing. And, and thus it was that Chicago police investigative efforts were made to understand, or at least try to understand, Leopold and Loeb. And so they pushed the two boys to explain themselves. Experts hired by Clarence Darrell's defense team later on would do the same. A pretty picture did not develop out of all these interviews. No, it did not. What resulted, what, what the world would learn was that in the case of Leopold and Loeb, there existed living proof, not just a theoretical possibility. No, living proof that a superior intelligence might exist in a mind absolutely devoid of human consciousness. Human conscience did not exist. Sublime intellect in a mind containing zero degrees of empathy. Absent any capacity to recognize the need or value of sympathy for the feelings of others was simply beyond themselves. They couldn't do it. The feelings of other human beings didn't matter because other human beings were of zero value to Leopold and Loeb. To learn that there existed such minds was indeed a scary thought. Such people were very, very dangerous people. And Leopold and Loeb explained that they found nothing wrong, nothing wrong with repeatedly stabbing to death by chisel another human being, a neighbor kid, just for the fun of it, to see what it felt like to murder somebody. It was just like a kid killing an insect. What's the big deal? I mean, these were dangerous boys, men indeed. Under questioning, both Leopold and Loeb admitted they were driven solely by a compulsion for thrill-seeking. They were uber-mentioned. They were supermen, delusional perhaps, but they had aspirations to commit the perfect crime. 
That's what they were all about. And Leopold elaborated for the benefit of police that he and Loeb were driven by the pursuit of thrills, you know, enraptured at the idea of doing something exciting and elated by the thought that they had gotten something over on someone. Whoa. That someone had to die for this to happen? Well, it didn't bother him at all. It didn't really matter to them at all, except, of course, they needed somebody to die. That was the whole point of the exercise. It was not much, you know, not much different than a laboratory experiment, you know, noting cause and effect. These boys readily admitted original plans for the commission of the perfect crime called for the strangulation of the victim. That's what that, that's how they were going to do it. But Leopold and Loeb then agreed you know, that they both at the same time would have to have their hands on the rope that would be twisted around the neck of the victim so as to ensure hmm, that they were both share equally in the guilt. Well, for logistical and other practical, practical and pragmatic reasons, the killers decided that this mutual strangulation requirement they placed upon themselves was an unnecessary impediment to both the achievement of their objective and the sharing of any future culpability for the, for the crime they were about to commit. In for a penny, in for a pound sort of thinking changed their minds. Neither, neither Leopold nor Loeb claim to have actually cherished the idea of the actual act of murdering someone, anyone, in and of itself. It had to be done. I mean, that's all there was to it. Though, let it be said that Leopold later did admit to police investigators a certain level of intrigue had come over him at the thought of what it would feel like to be a murderer. Somebody had to die in the act of committing the perfect crime, and after a fair amount of discussion, they decided it would be in their best interest, their best interest, if their target would be Bobby Franks. But they just decided, hey, today Bobby Franks is going to die. Done. Bobby Franks would be the target. There was nothing personal about it. It was obvious somebody had to die. That was the sole purpose of the exercise. And Leopold then reported for the record, just so everyone would know, so it would be totally clear, he had been rather disappointed. He had been let down, Leopold had. Actually, when he learned, he now felt the same as ever. Nothing had changed. He felt no differently after committing a murder. Murdering a person hadn't really registered with him. Truth be told, there was no difference one way or the other. <laughs> you know, when, when these confessions were made public and these details reveal, uh, there, there was a nationwide public outcry calling for the imposition of the death penalty as soon as possible. And authorities received many, many offers from people all across the United States whom volunteered to serve as the executioner of Leopold and Loeb. Hey, it's America. It's violence then, violence now. Let's admit it. America likes, no, America loves violence. If it didn't love violence, nearly 3,000 Chicagoans today wouldn't be shot this year. And the new Chicago mayor, Brandon Johnson, would not be on the news making speeches and expressing sympathy for the violent criminals. No, he would not. 
you know, making excuses for all the insane levels of, of, of violence that sucked the life out of Chicago. I mean, such a moron. And, and as I speak these words today, uh, I have learned that 47 people in Chicago were shot in the past 48 hours. Whoa. Given that, given that 74 people were shot on the last weekend in June, um, you know, maybe this constitutes, you know, relative calm in Chicago. Who knows? Anyway, as specifics of the 1924 Leopold Loeb case dominated the news and the cold-blooded nature of the killers was, was exposed for all to see. And, and it appeared, it appeared in, incomprehensible to the nation. I mean, the violence of, of prohibition, Al Cabone, Bugsy Moran, and fellow mobsters was one thing. But Leopold and Loeb killing a neighbor kid just for the fun of it, well, this was something, you know, something else in entirety. And rather nonchalantly, the killers informed the investigators, a fact upon which learning of this only added immensely to the horror that had to be felt by the distraught Bobby Franks family, that despite stabbing Bobby Franks in the back of the head, back of his neck, and to his back repeatedly, he just wouldn't shut up. He was screaming and yelling and he cried and he fought and he put up resistance. Can you imagine? I mean, this frustrated Leopold and Loeb. Bobby Franks refused to die. And they admitted in their own words, the boy did not succumb as readily as we had believed. So to stifle his cries of pain and fear, they were forced to stuff a rag in his mouth to shut him up. Then, even more from their nefarious confessions, there's this. Post-killing, post the actual killing of Bobby Franks, and having wrapped his corpse in a blood-stained blanket and having laid him in the back seat of the rental car, the boys then you know, proceeded to carry out the next step in their diabolical plan to commit the perfect crime. The, now they had to dispose of the victim's body. So they began their drive to Hammond, Indiana, where they dumped Bobby Franks' body in a remote field near a culvert where they believed it would not be discovered for quite a length of time. And the boys then proceeded to drive the 20 miles through the city and um, south suburbs of Chicago on their way to that pre, uh, to the agreed-upon prearranged disposal site. But wouldn't you know it, I mean, just wouldn't you know it, along the way, Leopold and Loeb recognized they were both hungry. I mean, they missed a meal, probably. You want to stop for dinner? Sure. You know, why not? So the boys, the boys pulled over at a local diner to grab a bite to eat. Bobby Franks's blood-soaked body lay in the back seat of the rental car while Leopold and Loeb reported that they went into that diner and ate an otherwise unmemorable meal consisting of hot dogs and root beer. Whoa. This was not weekend at Bernie's. This was real murder in real life. Having just stabbed a 14-year-old boy to death, his body lying in the back seat of their car. Leopold and Loeb had decided to stop for hot dogs and soda because they were famished. So now, 
at this point, let me let me pose for you one question to ponder. Fra French philosopher Michel Foucault famously wrote in one of his treatises, Discipline and Punishment, um, that the madman should be treated, not punished. Hmm. Well, in so in the case of of two boys who've stabbed repeatedly a 14-year-old neighbor to death and while in the process of disposing his body in a field, later to pour hydrochloric acid on his face and his genitals to mutilate him, announce they are quite hungry and ought to stop at a diner for hot dogs and root beer while the body of the 14-year-old victim lies dead in their car. Do you really believe that the proper response to this is rehabilitation. Is rehabilitation the answer? Does this appear to you to be a reasonable form of social justice for such heartless, ruthless, cold-blooded, unsympathetic killers as were Leopold Lowe? I mean, that's what I ask you. Do you believe any amount of time that these two killers might spend with social workers in in group therapy with psychologists or psychiatrists would likely persuade these two sociopaths to such an extent that they someday might come to the recognition. Oh, oh, wow. Now, now I get what you guys have been talking about. Murder. Murder is very bad. Killing a person is morally wrong. Homicide is a crime. Now we know. Now we get it. We should never kill people. We won't ever, we promise, we promise, we won't ever kill anybody else. We promise. We see the error of our ways. We shouldn't ever have murdered that kid, Bobby Franks, just for the fun of it. Our bad. God, what were we thinking? We feel so badly about it now. The recognition that has, you know, recognition has come too late. The essence of regret. We are so sorry for what we have done. We did not realize it was wrong to have stabbed our neighbor to death. And now that we understand this realization, we certainly will apologize ASAP. I mean, as soon as possible to the Franks family for having butchered their son. I mean, do you, I ask you, do you believe such a conversion might be possible? Really? Why? Because I certainly don't. And such a mental, emotional course correction, like, you know, the biblical Saul of Tarsus becoming St. Paul as if struck by lightning. If it were even possible, if it were even potentially just possible. Why would we care? Why would we possibly care? What good would come of it? Bobby Franks was already dead, stabbed to death with a chisel on his way home from school. Christ. Rehabilitation appears absurd to me. No amount of counseling is going to fix these two geniuses whom were so perverted as to kill their neighbor for the hell of it. Leopold and though they weren't child soldiers in the jungle forced to kill people to avoid themselves being killed, you know, like in the Ivory Coast or Sierra Leone. No, this was Chicago in 1924. They were students at the University of Chicago, for God's sakes. Don't we, 
Don't we have, shouldn't we have higher expectations of our citizenry? Shouldn't Western civilization, well, shouldn't Western civilization demand more of its citizens? I mean, is it too much to ask of Western civilization that we expect our citizens not to kill each other, especially not just for the fun of it? And what do we as a society do when we find members who will do that very thing and admit, well, after, after we killed the kid, well, we didn't feel any different before or after the killing. You know, now what? Well, it's these kind of questions and the answers that we're going to learn and we're going to face as we continue our story of the Leopold and Loeb case in the trial of the century in part 12 to follow. And the story does get very interesting. Hey, thanks for listening. Hope you'll tune in again. I'm lost in a drift on the high seas.
真的